0: Dear congregation, Isaac Newton once said, if you only knew what your thumb consisted of, you could not not believe in your creator. Did you know that your thumb can feel down to, on a smooth piece of glass, down to one two thousand five hundredths of an inch difference. And God gives you such sensitivity to protect you from pain, from danger. Truly we are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says you know, boys and girls, that four weeks after you, are, you were conceived in your mother's womb, you already were 10,000 times larger than you were at the moment of conception? And that you already had eyes and ears and mouth, and brains and kidneys and liver that were beginning to form? That at six weeks, the brain of an unborn child is already sending impulses to the other organs? Like an acorn that contains everything within within it. A whole oak embedded in principle in an acorn. So the earliest cells of our body contain within them the determining factor of our skin color, our hair color, and much of our personality and our character. Truly, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know that your mind is 20,000 times more complex than the most complex computer that has ever been made. God has given you great capacity. He showed you how to use your fingers and your eyes and with all the millions and billions of body parts you have orchestrated from your brain. He's given you vast potential. Truly, we are fearfully... And wonderfully made. And yet there is much more to say about how we were created. Than all these stupendous facts about our physical being. There's something higher. There's something loftier. And there's something humbler. About how we were made. And that's what we want to look with you at tonight. Our glorious creation. We want to do that from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and Genesis 2, verse 7. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. 2 verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. With God's help, our theme tonight is Our Creation as God's Masterpiece. Our Creation as God's Masterpiece. First, it's glorious dignity. It's glorious dignity. And second, it's profound humility. Our creation is God's masterpiece and we will see ourselves in Adam created with glorious dignity and created in profound humility. You recall, congregation, we have been Following, in recent weeks, the beginnings of the book of beginnings, Genesis. We saw the structure and the purpose of this book. We considered the major truths of Genesis 1 about God. We saw the attributes of God shining forth everywhere and how those attributes apply to us today. The last time we looked at the beautiful creation account. We saw the beautiful method of creation and its practical results for us. And we notice that in Genesis and throughout the scripture, really the Bible is a book that is theocentric, not only God-centric, but also anthropocentric, man-centered. And salvation in man takes place on the earth, so it's geocentric, earth-centered. Well, tonight we want to carry on from that theme and begin to look at man in God's world. Tonight we do that from the perspective of how we were created and God willing on a future occasion from Genesis 2. We want to look at all the provisions God surrounded us with as he placed man as his masterpiece in the midst of his own created world. But tonight we We just stop beside this one great fact that we were created as the apex, the crown, the masterpiece of God's glorious handiwork. Now Genesis 1 has been building up to this all the while. God has been going through day after day of creation with inanimate and animate objects, and there's been sort of a crescendo. There's been something Still missing. Something that must come and and, and be the masterpiece, the the crowning element of God's creation. Well, that's what we we find in our text tonight. God builds up to this. And when he comes to this in verse 26, you notice with me, please, that the whole literary form of Genesis 1 takes a sudden twist. There's something different now. You see, until now, God has just been issuing commands. He's been saying, let there be light. And there was light. He's been speaking. And it is. But now, God does something very remarkable. God enters into consultation with himself. He talks to himself, as it were. And marvelously, miraculously almost, we would say, God allows Moses to record this inter-Trinitarian dialogue within the Godhead. So that we, as it were, are brought alongside the Godhead to be spectators of God's speech to himself. Of God's own counsel among his own three persons. It's as if we're brought into the divine soliloquy where God speaks with himself. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And there's something beautiful about that. You see, God isn't saying... I'm going to make you after my image. He's not speaking to man. He's speaking to himself. He's speaking to the Son and to the Spirit. He says, let us. It's it's a plurality in the Godhead. Even though there's but one God. There's three persons. Here already is the Trinity on the opening page of the Scripture. Let us. You and I are allowed to, to hear this sacred dialogue. And this sacred dialogue. When God, as it were, interrupts this wonderful, glorious creation and takes a new approach and is going to obviously do something very special with what He's going to make next, He allows us to enter into that dialogue and we find out to our astonishment that God is at pains to enter into this dialogue to create you and me His special, His apex creation. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed Theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. So we read in verse 27 too. So God created man, you see. God enacts in verse 27 what he plans in verse 26. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he am male and female. Now the fact that we were created very, very special helps explain that there are many verses devoted to our creation, not only in Genesis 1, but also in Genesis 2. And that raises an important problem I want to resolve before we we go on tonight. There are many people, many scholars, who say that Genesis 1 is account of creation number one, and Genesis 2 is a second account of creation. And they say that that is obvious because verse 4 of chapter 2 is the beginning of the second section of the book of Genesis. You remember how Genesis is divided up into different sections, beginning with the word generations. And you see there, these are the generations of the heavens of the earth, when they were created. So there's a second section, and there you see man created again in verse 7. So they say there's obviously two different, some even say somewhat contradictory accounts of creation. And they say you can see it's two different accounts because in chapter 1, verse 27, male and female created he them, it says, as if God made them at the same moment. And in chapter 2, God makes man in verse 7, and further on in the chapter, he makes the woman. Well, of course, all these objections are wrong. But how do we answer them? Well, we say this, these two accounts are complementary, not contradictory. And that becomes obvious when you understand the literary structure of Genesis. The style of Genesis is first to give us things in general. And then God selects out of the general the things that are very important. He wants us to focus on and he gets more specific. I won't trouble you with all the instances. You'll find that in the book of Genesis. But that's the style of Moses as he writes. And so in Genesis 1, we have man set in his created cosmic context, man set in the context of the whole world, and in Genesis 2, God, as it were, takes a pair of binoculars before us, and he draws us close to the creation of man, and he focuses on man alone, and then shows us the provisions with which he surrounds man. So, Genesis 1 is more of a a, a world-centered view, and Genesis 2, God focuses more on man himself. Now, the reason God does that is precisely because you and I, boys and girls, are very different from animals. You and I are very special. We are God's apex creation. Now, we are different from man animals in, in, in many ways. But I want to focus with you on two major divisions. Two things that speak about our great dignity and our great distinctiveness as creation of God. The first is, we will look at our relationship to the rest of creation. And then secondly, we want to look at our relationship To God himself, our creator. Now in the first place then, our dignity and our distinctiveness is apparent when we look at our creation in relationship to all of the creation round about us. Our text says that God gave us dominion. Our forefathers called that vice regency over God's creation. Verse 26 says that very clearly, that we were created for that purpose, to have dominion over God's creation. But then verse 28 says that God told us in this creation, as he blessed us, to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and to care for the earth, subdue it. So God set us as a caretaker of his own creation, to rule over it, to exercise dominion over it, against the backdrop of our own subjection and submission to God. Now, we need to understand that, that total picture here. Really, what you see here is two levels of dominion, don't you? God is in charge of all things. God rules over all, including us and the whole human creation. And then there's man who rules over the rest of the created order. So, God intends to delegate out to man the dominion that man needs to rule on behalf of God. So, on the one side, there's a delegation about this rule. God gives it to man. And on the other side, there's a reflection about this rule. That is to say, God's perfect government is to be reflected in man's rule over creation. So, Adam and Eve were to look at how God was ruling take their cues from God, and reflectively rule on the earth in accord with the character and the nature of God. Now, many important principles derive from this truth, that we have dominion over creation. But certainly, one of the most important is that we have to care for the environment. We have the responsibility to look after all the resources in this world. They may never use this world selfishly. And all failure to explore the world in which God has set us, to explore it in submission to God, is contrary to God's will. We saw last time that really in this principle is the divine mandate for scientific inquiry. But that inquiry must always be subject to God's will and to God's word. But you and I are to explore God's world and to have dominion over it. And to exercise that dominion as caretakers of the Most High God. But then secondly, our dignity as created man is also evident in our relationship to God. To God Himself. You see, in relationship to the world, we are vice regents. But in relationship to God, we are His image bearers. That's what our text says too, doesn't it? Let us make man in our image. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. So God says, in relationship to me, I am creating you according to my image and my likeness. In other words, image and likeness are Quite similar, there's a little distinction. Image speaks of what we represent, and likeness speaks of what we resemble. So, man was given dominion over the earth because he represented God in the lower creation. And although the likeness has been distorted because of the presence of sin, man did resemble God as his creation because he was made as a moral being. And so you and I are to bear this image, to bear this likeness, and that's part of the dignity of our creation. Now, what's what's important tonight is to ask, what exactly is that image of God? What does it consist of? How may we recognize it? Some say, well, you can recognize it by the physical appearance of man. That's true, of course. Man is made in a special way. And we stand out from the rest of animal creation, don't we? In fact, everything about nature all around us is stamped by our divine creator. But man in a particular way, even physically, is stamped. Boys and girls, you know that different things you buy, if you lift them up and you look in the bottom, it will say, It will be stamped, made in Korea, or made in China, or made somewhere else. Well, you see, if you have eyes to see, every every leaf you see on a tree will be stamped with made by God, created by God. But that's particularly true of man, you see. The complexity of our physical being stamps us as an act of God's creation. But our physical appearance is not part of our image of God. Why not? Well, because God is a spirit. God has no physical parts. So obviously our physical parts can't resemble God when God has none. So that's not the answer. There are rather three capacities that God has given to man that reflect his image in the widest, broadest sense. The first capacity is, is our intellectual or our rational capacity. You see, God possesses a mind, and God is full of perfect wisdom. And when God addresses man, and he never says that to an animal, does he? God says, come now and let us reason together. Isaiah 1. So man has an intellectual capacity that distinguishes him from the animal's. And the Old Testament is full of affirming that. Psalm 32 verse 9 says, Don't be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding. Uh, er, Asaph compares himself in Psalm 73 to a beast. He says, So foolish was I ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. I wasn't thinking, he says. I was as a beast before thee. So man's intelligence, you see. His rationality on the one side distinguishes him from the animal creation, and on the other side, it resembles God. It's part of the image, part of the likeness of God. Now, that intellectual capacity is not just the capacity to reason and to remember and the fact that we can communicate better than any other creature, but that intellectual capacity resides in the fact that we can reflect and make ourselves the object of our own reflection. We are self-conscious creatures, self-critical creatures, able to assess ourselves. So we have an intellectual capacity and profundity that stamps us as being created after the image of God. But then secondly, there is this whole area of moral capacity. Moral capacity. You see, the God of Genesis 1 through 3 is a good and righteous God. He's a moral God. When he created the heavens and the earth, he looked at everything he made, and he said, it was very good. Now, when I was a boy, I remember thinking about that text, and I thought it just meant that God was happy with what he made. God was satisfied with what he made. But of course, that's only part of it, the smallest part of it. When God said it was very good, God was revealing his own moral goodness, not just the beauty of creation, as important as that is. God was saying, it is intrinsically good. It is morally good, because I have put man at the center of that creation. So, God reflects his own goodness in the moral dimension that he gives to man. And of course, you see that moral dimension come out again in chapter 2, where he says in verses 16 and 17, to man, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. God is placing a moral command before man. And that's something animals don't have either. Your dog may obey you when you command it to do so. If you've trained your dog. But that obedience is an acquired instinct that results from training, not out of the principle of morality. So, man is stamped with the moral image of God. That's our glory. That we have a conscience. That we have morality. That we have a sense of right and wrong. And that we can self-consciously reflect upon that morality. And then there is thirdly and finally, of course, our spiritual capacity. Animals don't have souls. Animals can't commune with God face to face. God said, let us make man in our image. Because I want to commune with man. I want to visit him in the garden. I want to walk with him in the cool of the day. You see, God didn't call out to any of the animals, where art thou? Only to man. You see, man has a unique capacity to speak with God, to commune with God, to have a personal relationship with God. And that's possible, boys and girls, because God has put a soul within you and within me. And that soul is worth more than all the money in the world. You are so valuable, children, not because you are good in yourself, you are sinful in yourself, but you are valuable because you have a soul. You have a soul that will never die. And since God is a spirit, you see, your soul is patterned after his image. It resembles the the, the very kind of being that God is. And so, we are created after the image of God with intellectual powers and moral powers and spiritual powers. The ability and the freedom free fall To worship God, and to praise God, and to commune with God. Well, we know, of course, that even nature praises God. That's what the Psalms say. But nature praises God involuntarily. Nature isn't self-conscious of what it is doing. The hills and the mountains praise the Lord, but not consciously. Nature doesn't choose to praise God. But you see, God made us as the apex of His creation. And gave us the freedom and the inclination to choose to praise Him and commune with Him and worship Him voluntarily, rationally, morally, spiritually. Now, this image of God, intellectual, moral, and spiritual, survives the fall, albeit. It is seriously tarnished, distorted, damaged, twisted by sin. Yes, in every way. But in the broadest sense of the word, this image of God is still there. If it wasn't there, we wouldn't have a conscience. If it wasn't there, we would have no inner longings, no inner hankerings after fellowship with a higher being. If it wasn't there, we wouldn't have the rational abilities we have. Now, please understand me. All these things are terribly damaged. They are ruined. But it is a, may I say it this way, it is a grand ruin. Man is a dignified being. He's gloriously created. And he's in ruins. He's in shambles. But he's like a palace. That's ruined. ruin. It's a grand ruin. Think of the time we were in England and we, Pastor Ramsbottom took us to the House of the Interpreter, the house that Bunyan had in mind when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. It was a magnificent palace, beautiful home. All the walls were still there, seven or eight fireplaces, set on a beautiful piece of property. It was really wonderful from a distance to look at, but when we got close by, we saw there was no roof. You couldn't live in the home. It was unlivable. It was damaged beyond repair. A stately home in ruins. That's our picture by nature. We are like stately homes in ruins. Having no roof over our heads to hide us from the wrath of God because we sinned and destroyed the palace home of our creation. We have ruined and destroyed ourselves. But the image of God is still there, even though we are now in an uninhabitable, unpalatable condition before God. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey please visit joelbeakey.org.